G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. The Story After going back to the hostel and just living in a place where it just felt like you weren't really anything to anybody anyway, so I really wanted to hook up with these kids again. I just felt comfortable with them. And uh, one night I actually stayed out on the streets with them and the next morning I was like, wow, this is great, really. I actually mean something here to people and, and that's where it all started. G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to the story. Well, Trish Coombs' life's journey has been one filled with tragedy, but as we'll hear, it's also one of transformation and triumph. She's written about her experiences in her book, For This Cause. It's an open and honest account of her life as a former drug addict and criminal. Today, we'll hear Trish's story of transformation as she has a chat with Karen Hunt from her home in Stanthorpe, Queensland. Tell us, where exactly in WA were you born and bred? And for you, growing up, how did your years begin? Well, I was um, born in Mount Lawley, Western Australia, Perth. Uh-huh. And it's just a little suburb in there. And um, my younger years, my first language was Italian. So I grew up in an Italian home with my um, Italian parents. Went to Italy when I was very young and then got back just in time to start school. So I had to learn the English language first before I could do my vows and that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's how I sort of started out. So being in an Italian household, Catholic beliefs? Yes, very strict. Yeah, how strict is strict? Just wasn't allowed to do what all the other kids were allowed to do. You know, we weren't allowed to have sleepovers, couldn't really go to my friend's house and have a play. And, you know, it was all work, work, work. There was really no time for play. And if there was a little bit of play, um, it didn't go on for very long, that's for sure. There was always something to do. There was dishes or cleaning. Always had to help mum and dad because they were always working. And, yeah, so it was pretty limited what we could do. Did you have other brothers and sisters? Yep, I had two sisters younger than me. Yeah. We're four years apart. So tell me about your schooling years. What did you enjoy? I probably didn't like very much, probably because I struggled at school. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, I had to learn the English. So Mm. I fell back a lot at school. At a younger age, I was teased and that. But um, no, I didn't really like school very much. So when your school got too hard, rebellion kind of was an easy way out? Yeah, because I was placed in all these um, basic classes. There were a lot of kids there that were pretty much struggling at school because of their lifestyles and that. They were pretty much the only people that made me laugh. I mean, you know, at home it was pretty hard and then I'd go to school and I'd see these kids just being silly and... And I'd get a bit of a laugh out of it. And, you know, I thought it was okay. And when things got tough, I sort of started looking at them as if to say, you know, they've got it pretty easy and I've got to go home. I've got all this stuff to do. And so, yeah, I started following them and sort of got lost. 
So you found yourself a ward of the state. What was it that led to that verdict? Um, yeah, well, as I got older, all the kids at high school, they were going, you know, they were allowed to go and, you know, they were going out, they were going to discos and stuff like that. And after hammering my mum so hard, saying, Mum, let me go, let me go to this disco, you know, I promise I'll be good. Well, the first time she let me go, I actually ended up in the park. Well, where the disco was, it was actually on a park. And mm. instead of being in there, we were actually out in the park where all the kids were getting drunk. And so, unfortunately, my first time that my mum actually let me go out didn't go down too well because I wasn't in the disco, I was out in the park. And then one thing led to another and um, my parents were very disappointed in me, um, very angry. Um, I ended up eventually running away because I couldn't go out. I found myself having to take off from home on a Friday just to do what all my other friends were doing. Mm. It was just really tough. It was like all work and no play, sort of. I was old enough to do all this stuff at home, but I wasn't old enough for that little bit of rope, just that little bit of trust. That's all I really wanted, and because I didn't get it, I think that's why I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to run away, and then I'll get to do it, and I'll come back home. So it sounds like those reins were held so tight that uh, you became labelled then as uncontrollable. Yeah, that's right, yeah. When I took off from home, I did it that many times that, I think mum must have been worried or whatever it was, um, rang the police. I ended up going to um, a family friend's place, which mm-hmm. was across the road from where we were all at one night. And I decided to go to sleep on their back veranda. Well, in the morning, the son of the lady, you know, woke me up on the lounge and said, what are you doing here? And I told him and um, he said, oh, look, you might be able to stay here. So they let me stay in the spare room. And the next morning, police came to get me and They said, okay, you know, you better get up and get dressed and we're going to court. And I said, oh, what are we going to court for? And they said, oh, your parents decided to hand you over to to us and we're going to take you to court and you're going to be made a ward of the state. So, yeah, that's pretty much what happened. Certainly something I imagine you weren't anticipating, hey? No, I was very disappointed. I thought, oh, my gosh, they've given up on me so quickly and easily. Where did you go and what followed? Okay, well, when I went to the hostel, I met some kids there who wanted to go, well, one kid who wanted to go out and he said, why don't you come out? with me we'll go and we'll meet some friends and I agreed and um, because the hostel had curfews and that so we had to be home at a certain time so that was okay for us to go out and then um, we ended up going downtown and on the way we drank he bought some beer and we drank and um, when we got to town he started yelling out to these kids and these kids were just sitting in the mall on you know in the mall on the little seats there and he introduced me to these kids and I found out later on that these kids were actually homeless kids you know we got talking and that, and then you know, we made arrangements to go get more alcohol and go sit at an esplanade in Perth, um, in, in the city there. And um, it was quite a nice spot, it was gardens everywhere, and that. And we sat in there and we drank. And I just came to know these kids. And later on that night, we, we noticed that the time was getting close to curfew time, so we quickly, this guy said, Quick, we've got to run. Let's get in the cab and we'll cruise on home. And it was after that happened that I found that these kids, I had something to relate to. These kids were actually not what I was thinking they were. Like, I had these visions that I was going to end up homeless on the streets because people were telling me, you know, you're going to end up homeless, you know, you're going to end up with the street kids in Perth and all this, you know, and they're really bad. So I had had this big picture in my head of what they'd Mm. be like, but they were nothing like that. They were really lovely and I really related with them. And for some reason, after going back to the hostel, and just living in a place where 
there was um, all these carers that would come and go. It just felt like you weren't really anything to anybody anyway. Mm. So I really wanted to hook up with these kids again. I just felt comfortable with them. And I found that I started hanging out in town with them. And uh, one night I actually stayed out on the streets with them. And the next morning I was like, wow, this is this is great, really. I actually mean something here to people. And and that's where it all started. I sort of started rebelling in the hostel and running away and running back to town and, and just hanging out with them because I just felt that's where I felt more special. Do you know what I mean? Did you feel a significance with these kids? Was it like a, a little community in itself? I, I can imagine you were all really escaping the reality of, of what would have seemed a cruel life. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, mm. I've even um, We were even interviewed as when we were kids by the news. I actually have that clip. And um, we were escaping, all of us were, and it just felt like we were a little family. So that's why I really did feel like I, I was part of something. And just going back to the hostel felt really cold and there was no love, there was nothing. And, and when I hung around these kids, I felt like I was part of something special. So that's, yeah, that's pretty much... We were all in the same boat and that's what it was all about, yeah. So you weren't only feeling a sense of hopelessness, but homelessness kicked in for you too and that led to crime, that led to prostitution. What type of things did you get into? Um, well, do all those things. It would all start off with um, drinking alcohol. So you were drinking alcohol, you were popping pills, we are just taking these big risks in life. It was like we didn't know what was going to happen the next day, you know, and we really didn't care. We were living day by day and, um, you know, and sometimes we'd get a thrill out of it. We would um, get drunk and then go steal a car and then we'd go drive around and then we'd probably do some ram raids and ram raid into some bottle shops and get some more alcohol and just really rebel against society and um, and take out all our frustrations on society because of the way we were feeling yeah, and that's that was the lifestyle and then, you know, you had to survive so crime was the only way. Yeah, and then there was prostitution and that kicked in when you couldn't stand going to institutions anymore. You were locked up when you got mm. caught by the police. And, um, yeah, and it was easier to go do a trick than it was to go do a job and get caught and go back to jail. You're listening to The Story. Today, Karen Hunt is chatting with Trish Coombs, who now lives in Stanthorpe, Queensland, but is originally from Perth in WA. Trish is the author of the book For This Cause, about her life as a drug addict and criminal. We'll find out how it all turns around when we return. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. Call 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's 1-800-772-936. It's a free call. Or text 0401 132 888. Hi, I'm Jimmy Colfax and this is The Story. We're continuing with Karen Hunt chatting with Trish Coombs, author of the book For This Cause, about her life as a drug addict and criminal. Before the break, we heard about Trisha's troubled childhood and her descent into drugs and prostitution. Now we'll find out what happened next in her life. The vulnerability, Trish, and the desperation, I can only imagine. Well, I can't imagine really, but you've lived this for yourself. Yeah. What happened at the age of 17? 
Um, because I was so known by the police, they were desperate to put me into jail. They said, when you turn 18, you're going to jail. This is just a little camp, kids camp, because I was in and out of institutions. And they said, oh, you know, this is just a camp. We can't wait. As soon as you turn 18, we're going to lock you up. You're going to bandy up. And I said, but what happens if I'm not doing anything wrong? And they said, oh, we'll find something. Sure, we'll find something. And I just thought, that age, I'm thinking, am I really going to be going to jail? Is that my life? Is that my future? Mm. Do I really want to do that? And hearing that there was going to be no hope for me in that near future, it sort of left me, you know, wondering. And, and then anyway, there was a friend that was on the streets with me who was sent to Queensland back to their parents. And he wrote to me and he said, I'm in Queensland. If you ever want to come over, let me know, you know, we'll, we'll put you up. And that was like an and um, yeah I went and did a job I went and worked uh, I knew an old man who was doing a little bit of concrete and asked him for a bit of work so I can earn some money because otherwise I would have got locked up and I didn't want to go jeopardising it my escape plan so I went and did a, a couple of weeks work pebble paving and concreting and earned enough money for my bus ticket enough just enough to get on the bus and a couple of friends gave me a $20 note to eat, which didn't really get me far, but it got me to Queensland. So so how old were you then? I just turned 17. In the picture so far, where would you say God was at that time in your life? Well, God was there always. He's always been there, but he was sort of distant to me at first. I would often wonder why my life was going the way it was, why I was living the life that I was living because it just seemed really unfair. You know, I looked at my sisters and thought, you know, they've seemed to have it better than me. Why am I going this way? I don't really want to be here. And I'd always sort of think about God while I was thinking these things because I grew up in a Catholic home and went to church and got my sacraments. And it was something that mum really pushed me to do when I was young. And I'd find myself only going to church by myself when I was little and being made to go walk there and walk home. So I reckon I encountered God at a very young age. And I reckon the times when I was really sad and sorrowful and drinking and found myself just alone, I would sense his presence around me, which was really strange at the time because I thought, hang on a minute, the God that I know doesn't like sin and I am sinful and I am really bad and because my parents saw me like that, I thought God was seeing me like that. Mm. And because I felt like that, I felt that I should be running away from this God. Mm -hmm. He was angry and he had a big stick. That's how I seen God at that stage. Right up until this point where I get to Queensland, something amazing happened to me where I met a guy who sort of fell in love and then had my first child. Mm -hmm. And it was like at that point that, oh my God, you know, something's really happening for me now. Like I might actually have some hope here. And I gave up the alcohol because I was a very bad alcoholic for many years from childhood to 17 and from that point when I ran away from home till I was 17. And... When I fell pregnant, it all stopped. It was like I had a reason to sort of give it up. Yep, you had a purpose, a brand new purpose. purpose. Yep, yeah, and I lived clean, would you believe, for eight years. Eight years later, my whole world came crashing down when my partner, who was um, had been smoking marijuana since he was 14 years of age, wow. he had a psychotic breakdown and um, ended up detained in the mental ward for four months mm. straight. I just felt like my whole world came crashing down right there and then I'd lost everything. 
It was like it was all too good to be true. And mm. I blamed God for that. I got really angry with him. There you are, vulnerable all over again. It was a bit like a, a merry-go-round, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So did your partner come out of that season okay or was he not the same? What happened? No, he wasn't. He was never the same. Um found myself alone. He was in the rehabilitation place and I had little children. And So you had more than one child at this stage? Yeah, I ended up having another boy. I had another boy before he got sick. And, okay. Uh, first boy was four and the other boy was two and I found myself very vulnerable again. As years went by, he never really got over it, do you know what I mean? And mm. um, he was never the same and it really played on me because this man that I fell in love with was no longer that man and he wasn't able to do what he used to do mm. to make me happy in that, I suppose. So in the end, you had three children all up to the same guy? Yep. Then I wanted to run away and try and get him better. So we flew back to Perth and when I got to Perth, I was pregnant with my third child, which was my, my little girl. And um, we were over there for a little while. And then he, because um, he was never the same, he wasn't in that right frame of mind. He kept smoking marijuana because he met someone that smoked it. So he could never really run away from it. And things just got really hard and he got sick again. So I had to ring his family and we came back to Queensland because they paid for us to come back there. And then he um, totally lost it. And then I was just back in that same boat that, emotional roller coaster. Trish, what was the catalyst for change? You know, God had you in the palm of his hand all along. What yeah. was it that made a turnaround? Um, just wanting a better life, I think, and just sensing that God was always there through the hard times. And I thought, he really does love me. He must love me because he's always hanging around me. Something's going on. But inside, I was very, very um, broken, and and I knew that you know I was going to come undone if I, you know, if I didn't cry out hard enough, I suppose. And um, I pretty much sort of said to God, you know, I need, I need to get out of here. If you don't help me, I'm going to die. I need to get out of here. I know you're real, and if you're real, you need to really do something about my life because I'm going to die if you don't help me. It was like, I don't know, I can't really explain it, but it was like I was surrendering without even knowing. It, it's I, I don't know if I can explain it, Karen, but um, when you're in a moment like that, it's very personal, and I sensed God smiling at me. I sensed him like a sigh of relief that, oh, my God, you're finally getting it. You know, mm-hmm. I'm here for you. I want to help you. I'm not looking at what you're doing wrong. I really want to give you what you want. You're finally getting it. You know what I mean? And mm. it just felt like he just picked me up out of this hole, plonked me on the side and, and smiled on me because I cried out to him. I cried out to him. That's pretty much what I did. Trish, God is a God of second chances. I know that you know that very, very well. You said mm-hmm. that God just started talking to you. Well, in that crying out to God and asking him to help me, it was that, that pivotal moment for me when I heard him just saying everything's going to be all right. It was like an anchor right there that I could hold on to when I heard him say that. And and then, you know, and I would continue talking to him and, Lord, I've got to get out of here. What am I going to do? I'm going to, you know, he started talking to me and started telling me and counselling me um, that I should return back to Stanthorpe because I lived here when I had my second boy. That's where we were living okay. just before my partner got sick with um, schizophrenia. I ran to the, um, the travel agent and I paid for my tickets to leave 
Perth to go to Scanthorpe. Which started you on a journey to recovery, yeah? Yeah, and yeah, and from that day, God was always talking. And because I wanted his help so bad, I believe I was inviting him to give me that advice. And, and he was speaking, and he's still speaking today. So you had a group of Christian people gather around you. Uh, suddenly there was a church community embracing you and yes. helping you along the way. Yeah, when I got here, my brother-in-law's um, girlfriend came to me and said, you know, Trish, we've been praying for you. I'll go to a church and, you know, we've, we've known that you've been struggling all along and we've been praying for you. Why don't you come along to church? And I thought, wow, what sort of a church is this? Because she was struggling too. You know, the church I was used to was a Catholic church, and you know, and it was all about doing right. It wasn't about coming broken or anything. It was mm-hmm. about looking good and looking the part. And I thought, I don't look the part, so how is this going to work? And anyway, I took her up on the advice because she wasn't going to let off, and I went to the church, and I couldn't believe it. I was embraced by the people there. They knew I was an addict. They knew that I was coming from that place, the place that I'd come from, they knew, but they still embraced me, and they loved on me. And it was from that day that I seen that compassion and that love and acceptance that I sort of hungered for more of it, and I started going to church regularly hearing the word and getting mm-hmm. prayer and God started to heal me. He started to heal my heart. Just something miraculous started to happen in me. You discovered that you were loved, truly, I unconditionally. Loved, yeah. And when I realized that, it was that moment that I thought, I don't need drugs anymore. Yeah. I don't need drugs anymore. And that's where it started. That was it. That was the end for me. I still get around people that are around drugs today because I've known people and that, but nothing could ever make me go backwards because I've experienced his love. So that was the end of your past, but the beginning of your future. Tell us what it is that you're engaged with now. I know you have some hopes and dreams to get into chaplaincy. You have a business at the moment? I do a bit of cleaning. Mm -hmm. Um, I've had to put off the cleaning because God asked me to write a book when I came over here. When I first got over here and I I started coming to church, it was only a couple of years after that that he started prodding me saying, I want you to write. I want you to write about this story. And I'm like, how? I'm really uneducated. I can't write. And he said, you just write it the way it is and I'll do the rest. And the thing is, he has done the rest. He's provided everyone to help with the book. Um, All I've had to do is write it. Everyone's jumped in and done everything that's needed to be done. And it's just been amazing. And um, during this time that I've been doing that, because I've been part of the church, you know, I go to the high schools and I talk about drug awareness. So... When we do RE at the high school, I go along with the pastors and and I give them my testimony. And the kids love it. They really respond to it. Um, They can really relate somehow to my story. And depending on what year I'm talking to, I'll say, oh, wow, you know, you're in year nine. Well, when I was in year nine, you know, Mm -hmm. and I see these kids growing up over the years and just doing really well for themselves because they've heard the story as really encouraging mm. so and, um, yeah and I'm looking to um, hopefully get my story out there so that everyone gets to experience God's love because it's the ultimate thing that we need we really need God we really do I couldn't have done it without him people ask me every day how did you get off the drugs how did you do that and I tell them straight out the first thing I do is I'll look for a church from wherever they are at and I'll say this is how I did it I went to church and I experienced God's love and people that he surrounded me with they encouraged me and they, they helped me grow and I'm a new person because of that oh, God bless you honey your book's entitled For This Cause 
as well as writing, though, you've also been studying, doing some ministry study? Well, I did that through the years as well. Like, over the last 10 years, I did um, certificate four in theology. It was challenging, but I love it because I want to know the Word more. I want to know God's Word more. I want to know Him more intimately. And the only way to do that is to learn His Word. And it wasn't until I started reading the Word that my life did start to change. His Word started to just grow in me, and I started to live it out. So... Mm. If you're going to surrender your life to God, you've got to read the Bible. It's, it's really important, yeah. Well done. God bless you, hey. As you yes. continue on your journey, you're now married to Wayne. You've got three kids or have more come along since then? No, I've got five kids all together. So five kids, blended family. Yep. And you're the boss at Coombsy's Cleaning Service. God bless you. God bless your family. God bless your church. I'm sure as your story continues to unfold, God will use you for his purposes, as you say, to help make Jesus famous. Amen. Thanks so much for your time. God bless. Thank you. That was Karen Hunt chatting with Trish Coombs in Stanthorpe, Queensland. And what an amazing story of transformation Trish has. She's written about her life journey in her book, For This Cause. It's great to hear how she's gone from a life of crime and drug addiction to one dedicated to the cause of Christ and setting captives free. A perfect example of the biblical verse, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you'd like to learn more about Trish Coombs and her book, you can go to her website, makingyoufamous.com. That's makingyoufamous.com. Well, thanks for joining us for Trish's amazing story. I'm Jimmy Colfax, encouraging you to share your story with someone today. Next time on The Story. The Ministry of Health in the nation of Latvia didn't know how to handle all the orphanages that the communists had established. Well, two of these Russian pastors came to me, good friends now, and said, can you help us? We can hardly look after ourselves. And I thought, look, look, I'll restructure and I'll do this for two years. Well, at the two-year mark, I was supporting four orphanages. At the five-year mark, it was seven orphanages. I got to the Lord in some serious prayer and I said, you know, Lord, you con me. You con me. In 1972, God called David Smithhurst and his wife Margarita into ministry. This calling has taken them into churches and prisons across the world, including Africa, Latvia and other former Soviet Union countries. We'll find out the story behind David Smithhurst's ministries next time. The Story. Just another way vision is connecting faith to life.